Well, in Romans 9 through 11, Paul spends a great deal of space explaining why the gospel is true, despite the fact that a vast majority of Jews have rejected the Messiah. Now, the question may not be a top concern for you as a modern reader. You don't, I mean, when was the last time you thought, well, why is the gospel true? How do I know the gospel is true even though Israel has rejected the Lord in, in large scale? Well, it's, it's still a very important question, and it has massive ramifications for our confidence in the gospel. The fact that the Jews have so easily walked away from their Messiah is a bigger problem than we might give it credit for. It was to the Jews that God made the promise of salvation and restoration. And so how do we account for the fact that they have not received those promises? Here's why the question matters. Either God has unjustly reneged on this promise. In other words, he's, he's backed out of what he said he would do. Or he was not powerful enough to keep his promise. Those are some of the two options that people tend to think of when it comes to God's promises and people rejecting the Lord. Either God has backed out of his promise in keeping the promise to the Jews, or he's not been powerful enough to deliver on those promises, or maybe there's a third option here. And so if, if God, and here's the question, if God did back out, if he unjustly backed out of his promise to the Jews, how do we know he's not going to back out of his promises to us? How do we know that the Jews' story is not one day going to be our story? Or if he was somehow impotent and, and lacked the power to bring us the promises that he gave us, how do we know that we can trust that he will powerfully bring his promises to us? How do we know that we will one day not become like the Jews who have become disinherited from the promises and work of God? So that's why it matters. If, if God could so easily shirk back away from the Jews, and he could do so to you and I, right? If God could break his promises to them, then he could break his promises to you. So that's why the question matters. That's why Paul spends so much space explaining why God hasn't broken his promise, and neither was he powerless to do his promise. Quite the contrary, the Jewish rejection reveals something specific about God's sovereignty and his goodness. He repeats it time and time again. God's sovereign, and, uh, God's sovereign election and his purposes do not render him either unjust or powerless. Instead, they show that his promises are marching on faithfully, even though some have rejected the gospel. God is keeping his promise. He hasn't broken his word. Now, in seeing that God's sovereignty does not mean that he failed or that he abandoned Israel, Paul calls us to have confidence in our sovereign God, to know that he will never put us off, he will never break his promise, that he will never fail us, because even in this Jewish rejection, where it seems as if the promises of God are still incomplete, or have been forgotten or broken or changed, even in that, he says, that is not the case, and so we can trust that our God will not fail or abandon us. Now, in the previous section, Paul explained that even despite Israel's rejection, God's word had not failed. He said that. So does this mean that the word of God has failed? Certainly not. He is absolutely sovereign, and whomever he elects and calls are brought into the family of Abraham. God's promises then, just by way of, of, of uh, logic, are faithfully marching on, which is evidenced by the salvation of some Jews and many Gentiles. 
Now in this passage, Romans chapter 9, verse 30 to chapter 10, verse 21, Paul continues to explain so that we might understand how the Jewish rejection falls into God's sovereign promises. Why have the Jews on large scale rejected the Messiah? In other words, whose fault is it that the Old Testament people of God have not been saved as the Old Testament promised? Who's at fault? Is it God's fault? Has he failed in some way? Or is there a different option? And what does that option tell us about God's redemptive plan? In Romans chapter 9, verse 25, Paul states that God has saved not only Jews, but also Gentiles. The Lord has called nations who were not my people and made them sons of the living God. He points out the strange paradox uh, beginning in verse 30, and you can read it uh, alongside it. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. It's a stunning reversal, isn't it? How is it that those, specifically the Gentiles, who did not work their whole lives long to become righteous, who did not attempt to obey the law, who did not even maintain any sort of sense of holiness, how is it that they, who have never pursued this righteousness, have now attained it? While the Jews who had very specific laws, down to how far you could walk on the Sabbath day before breaking it. How is it that they have not attained in reaching it? Well, Paul answers. He gives us the answer in verse 32. It is because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Now, according to Paul, the Jews' tragic error was that they believed the law was the means by which they could become righteous. The words as if that he uses there are really important because they highlight the reality that God never intended the law to be used in such a way. The law, just just let me clarify this up for you, the law was never a plan A to receive righteousness. Never given it for that, right? We're not on, it's not like he gave law as plan A, let's see if they receive righteousness that way, and then I'll send plan B, Jesus and it'll be by faith. No, it's always ever been by faith, never by law. The law was never intended to be the means by which we become the righteous people of God. Instead, the law had a purpose to reveal, right? Yes, it certainly calls people to obey, but it also has the purpose of revealing and exposing our unrighteous hearts. That's why the law was given. It it lays down the standard so that every time we cross the line, we see just how often we cross the line. It points out, it's the, it's the flashlight that shows all the deep, dark, creepy crawlies of sin that we have hidden in our hearts. That's the law's purpose, is not to, to give you a standard by which you may somehow attain righteousness, but to reveal just how unrighteous we really are. Now the problem is, they misinterpreted the law to believe that it was by the means of obeying law that they might become righteous, and therein lied their error. Terrible, tragic error. Because they pursued the law as a means of righteousness, they never received it. They never attained it. Instead, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Because they were pursuing the law as a means of becoming righteous, 
Many of the Jews simply could not accept the grace that came in Christ. They, they had this system of salvation that required grit, that required hard work, that required zeal. And they were gonna, they were gonna achieve it. We're gonna do it. We're gonna put all of our hearts into it. We're gonna chase after it. And because of that, they stumbled over the gospel, which is not about grit or hard work, but about faith in the one who has worked for us. Here's in other passages like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, the stumbling stone and the rock of offense is Jesus himself. So quite literally, these people have run so hard after the law that they literally trip on Jesus. They don't know what to do with him. They, they've lived their whole lives as if it's up to them that they must keep up all these, these requirements of holiness. They must keep the Sabbath, the new moon festivals, the fasting, and that's because of doing all those things that they would somehow become righteous. And then they get a Messiah who comes and proclaims as not by works of righteousness, is not by our efforts, is not by what we do, but by what he has done. That it was not by the righteousness that we have or the righteousness that we're pursuing or the holiness that we idolize, but by the holiness of his sacrifice and the righteousness that bled on the cross and was poured out to us. Here's my biggest fear for churched people. It is possible for us to become so zealous for holiness, for rightness, even things that could be labeled things of God. We could become so zealous for righteous living, right? We have a whole list of, list A of things that are okay to watch and list B of things that are not okay to watch, right? We, we could become so zealous in updating all the, all the Disney Plus movies that now you can't watch. We can become so zealous that everyone in the church becomes teetotalers. Now, alcohol addiction is not even fathomable in the church because we just simply cut it out. We can become so zealous for all of that and yet miss the point altogether. Like the Jews, there are many a modest, law-abiding, church-going, Bible-carrying people who have, a, who have failed to attain God's righteousness. Why? Because they were zealous for a holiness. They were zealous for a way of being righteous. But as was true of the Jews, they didn't understand it. They pursued it without knowledge. What is the righteousness of God? How do we receive the righteousness of God? How is the righteousness of God manifested? Well, according to Romans, it's by two ways, either through judgment against sin or through justification, which is by grace. But God's righteousness is not displayed by your life and what you pursue and not pursue. His righteousness is displayed in salvation or judgment. He, the, the Apostle Paul loves morality. He loves holiness. He loves a committed de devotional life. He loves and even demands church attendance. Those are all good things, things that God requires and demands, and yet they should never be elevated as the subject, the object of our hope and trust, as the means by which we're righteous. You are not righteous because you sit in church today. You are not righteous because you use the ESV Bible. 
You are not righteous because you have some elevated, exalted morality that outdoes your neighbors. That is not the righteousness of God. It might be morality. Morality's good, right? I'm not saying that morality's wrong. I'm not saying that holiness is wrong. Certainly read your Bible every day. Come to church. But do not miss the fruit. Do not miss the root for the fruit. We oftentimes point to the fruits, church attendance and, and, and all these good things, and we act as if that is the root of our righteousness. That's how we know we're righteous. Paul says, no, it's none of that. Cut that out. <laughs> you are not righteous because of that. As Paul says, no self-driven pursuit of righteousness through the law or works will help you reach and attain God's righteousness. You will not reach it in what you do, in who you vote for, in what you say that you stand for politically. All those things may be important, and they certainly are, and I don't want to undermine the importance of that. But you are not the righteous people of God because of those things. You will not become the righteous people of God by doing those things. The righteousness of God comes from somewhere else. So stop looking at it in terms of who you vote for, who you politically align with, how you, what you follow on social media, whether or not you have Disney+. Plus. Right? It's not from any of those things. It's from Christ and Christ alone. Over and over and over again, the New Testament proclaims a gospel that says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And then it goes on to say what? Those of you that know it, this is not of your own doing, right? It is a what? A gift from where? From God, not a result of what? Works so that no one may boast. Man, the most dangerous and damning thing for the American church today is that we have a bunch of Christians protesting as if righteousness is a matter of what we have stood for and done. How antithetical to the New Testament is that? We should do good works. Scripture says that if you believe in God, you will do good works. But don't forget what is the cause and what is the effect. We do good works not so that we will become righteous. We do good works because God has declared us righteous. And now we want to do good works. Don't flip them upside down. It's not just the message of the New Testament, however. This is the message that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Even the law itself, he says in uh, verse four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now the word in here is not implying that the law is no more and it's not important or anything like that. Like some people have preached, it's, it means, the, the Greek word here is telos, meaning that the goal of the law is Christ. If you follow the law, if you look to the law, it's gonna point you in one direction and that's in a Christ word direction. If you come to the law, looking for righteousness, you won't find it. You'll only find your own unrighteousness. And that's by design. The law shows you just how far from the Lord you actually are. The law spotlights and highlights your unrighteousness. Why? So that it will compel you to Christ, who is righteous. It will break you down. It will wound you. It will point out every living flaw that you have. Why? 
to point you to the only one who is perfect and the only one who offers that righteousness. It displays God's righteous standard by exposing your unrighteous heart and then leading you to Jesus. It keeps nudging you to Christ. My friends, I don't care who you are and how well you have lived. If we were to take you to task by the law, every single one of you have fallen short. We are all transgressors, which means we have all crossed the line knowingly that God put that line there. You come to the law to say how good you are. We're all just gonna see how bad you are, right? It's like you're holding up a straight stick and bending yourself to try to make yourself look in alignment with it. It doesn't work. You're crooked. We all see it. But it's in Christ that we're considered righteous not in what we do. Now, I think as we read this passage, we should recognize two primary applications. First, we should be very careful that we do not fall into the same tragic error of trying to establish righteousness by our own work. So if you find yourself waking up every day feeling like you're a good person because of what you did yesterday or because of what you're about to do today, that's a key sign that maybe you are pursuing and trying to establish for yourself righteousness. If you are able to check off your list, I I know I'm righteous because I went to church today. Okay, that's self-attained, self-established righteousness right off the bat. If if you're pressed to to see why you're righteous and you begin listing all those things off, don't do that. And we face that temptation every single day, don't we? At least I do. Am I I self-confessing here? I face it every single day in thinking that I'm a righteous father or a righteous husband or a righteous pastor because of what I've done. And it becomes a matter of all these things that I do that other people don't do. And the reality is, is that I have stopped to see that righteousness has come from my Lord. This passage calls us to daily repent of the propensity to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to call ourselves righteous because of what we have done. We are righteous because of Christ alone. The gospel says, Yehovah to scan you, God my righteousness. Not Justin and his voting record. Not Justin and his hard work. Not Justin and the way that he parents. That's not righteousness. It may be the manifestation of righteousness being outworked, but it's not righteousness. At the end of the day, there's only one righteousness that I have. And it's not in me. Yehovah to scan you, God my righteousness. Second, I think Paul teaches us how to pray for all the hard workers, the go-getters, the zealous who have yet to see Christ as the object of their hopes for salvation. I think sometimes we, we have a bit of a poor, we, we're a bit blind to the reality of our society. Our society, as much as you'd like to think, is full of millennials who live in their mother's basements playing video games and watching pornography, that is not reflective of what society actually is today. We live in a world, not just the American society, but in a world as a whole that values hard work to the extent of it is what you do. We live in a world full of people, the mass majority of people who are working really hard. Right now, the kids sitting in their basements playing, their, playing the video game in their mom's house, They're not here to hear this, so I'm just gonna say it to who's here. Here's why I don't preach to millennials very much who aren't here. I'm gonna preach to the hardworking Texans that are here. There's a danger in working so hard that you forget about the labor that he's done for you. 
there's a danger in working so much that you try to find some kind of self-identity through it. Well, Paul prays not for the lazy Gentiles who have rejected the, the Lord, not, not in this passage at least. He's praying for hardworking religious zoos, Jews. That was not racial. That was totally a mistake. He is praying for Jews who work extremely hard, who would outdo you and I in morality. He teaches how to pray for the go-getters, for the zealous. But notice how, what he doesn't do. He doesn't just critique the Jews. He doesn't mock the Jews. He actively prays for their salvation. He is like torn up. Now, Paul, if anyone had a reason to hate the Jews and to write them off and to mock them, it's Paul. He's been beaten by them multiple times. He's been threatened to be killed by them. And yet he prays for them in tears and brokenheartedness. My friends, we should do the same. It's so easy to critique the world's lostness. Every week around my fire pit, I get to be around other people and the, the, the most common refrain is how broken our society is. And comment after comment after comment after comment about how broken the American society is. You know, that's the easy side of things. It's, it's easy to critique. But critiquing is not what you've been called to. Your job is not to just complain about how broken the world is. You are called to love your fellow men through the earnest prayers of your heart every single day. As much as you might be tempted to air out your complaints about your lost kinfolk, about your society that has turned away from Christ, ultimately, here's what Jesus wants you to do, to pray for them. It is really easy to post, to tweet, and to laugh at them. Super easy to do that. But that is not Christ. Christ, when he saw the lost sinners, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, he saw them as blind men and women who were groping in the dark. We're, we're beating up on blind people through our comments. We're laughing at sheep who don't have a shepherd that are wandering, and, and that's so Christless. To be a Christ-honoring Christian means to be driven to pity, to not complain, to not tweet, to not post, but to pray for the salvation of your lost world. We get it. The world's lost you don't have to read the newspaper to see that. Genesis 3, Romans 3 says it again and again and again. What are you going to find next week? That the world's broken? My friends, we have thousands of years of proof of that. You know, it'd be truly surprising is to find a group of Christians committed to pray for their lost neighbors to be saved. It's not all that surprising to wake up every day and find new posts on social media about how broken the world is. That's not surprising. And quite frankly, it's not the most effective thing either. What's more effective is to pray for our unregenerate friends. Paul teaches us to do that. His commitment is to strongly desire and to pray for his kinsman's salvation. Now from here, Paul contrasts pursuing righteousness by the law and pursuing righteousness by faith. The difference could not be more striking. When it comes to righteousness pursued by the law, the standard is absolute unrelenting perfection. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. In other words, if you're gonna live by the law, you better do it. If you don't obey the law, 
and you say you're going to live by the law, you're going to be damned by it. You're going to be cursed by it. We see it in Galatians 5.3 where Paul talks about circumcision, where people are receiving circumcision to become righteous. He says, fine. You want to live by the law for righteousness? Here's what I'm going to tell you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You want to live by the law? You better keep it. James 2.10 adds, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You break even one point of it. Who cares that you haven't committed murder? If you've lusted, you're, you've broken the law. You're cursed, you're damned, you're judged, condemnable. And that's why Paul can say in Galatians chapter three, verse 10, that anyone who relies on the law, on the works of the law, are already under a curse. Why can he say that? Why can he say that if you rely on law, if you rely on your works, that you are already damned. How can he say that? Because he knows that none of us can keep the law, can we? Anybody ready to stand up and claim absolute perfection? Because that's what it takes to be justified by the law. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly and he stands before God without a mediator, without atonement, because he is absolutely perfect. Are you ready to claim that status? Because if we are righteous because of what we do, the demand is for absolute perfection. And that's what we're claiming. Paul says, no, you can't do that. You're not perfect. You're sinful. Which means that if righteousness is about what you do, then you've already done wrong, and so you're not righteous. So righteousness must come from somewhere else, and that's the righteousness by faith. Quoting Deuteronomy 30, Paul writes, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? The abyss That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Righteousness based on the law is all about doing, right? Attempting to ascend heaven, to de- descend the abyss, to accomplish God's law. It's all about go, 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 right? That's what the law says. Do, 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 do. On the other hand, righteousness based on faith looks to what Christ has already done. We do not have to ascend into heaven. This is what Paul's point is. We do not have to ascend into heaven to find righteousness. So you don't have to go build staircases to the sky to become righteous. Why? Because heaven's already come down through Jesus. He, you don't have to ascend up to heaven and be morally perfect to become righteous. Why? Because righteousness has already come to us. You cannot get to heaven. Heaven must come to you. That's the point. You build your Tower of Babel, it will fail. What you need is the stairway, Jesus, the house of God, the Bethel, to come and open up heaven's door to you by bringing it to you. And so he says, you don't don't have to climb anymore. Jesus has already come down. So if you act like you're climbing, then you're acting as if Jesus never came. And he says, you don't have to swim the abyss. You don't have to swim the ocean. Why? Because Jesus has already been raised from the dead. You don't have to descend so deep into the abyss to find righteousness. Jesus has come up from the grave and brought it to us. So what he's saying is, a a righteousness based on the law is all about doing. But a righteousness based on faith requires looking to what the Lord has already done. Have you ever thought about the foolishness of building a wall that's already been built? That sounds kind of stupid, doesn't it? 
or tearing down a house that's already been demolished or paying for bail, jail, that has already been paid or paying a bill twice. That's kind of stupid, isn't it? Especially if it's your electric bill. Paul's saying, why are you trying to pay a bill that's already been paid? Why are you trying to swim an ocean that Jesus has already swum? Swum, swam, swimmed. There you go. Thank you, Judah. Man, that's my living example of Grammarly right there. It's just, yes, it's great. So he already swam, right? Yes, okay. Why are we attempting to ascend to heaven when heaven's already come down. That's his, that's his point. When we live by the law, we're attempting to do things that Christ has already done. We live by our own morality and by our own righteous acts. We are basically making Christ's acts dull and, uh, dull and void. Null and void. Man, I'm two for two today. He goes on to quote Deuteronomy 30. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, faith is manifested by confession. It takes a lot to confess, right? It's not just about saying that Jesus is Lord. A lot of people have, have wrongly believed that if you verbally say it, then, then it must be true for you. No, it's, it's about a public confession added with a heart of faith. Those two things. You must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised up Jesus from the dead. That's where salvation comes. So, so he's not, the, gospel, the law says go do. The gospel says believe, trust. Stop doing for the moment to see what's already been done. Sometimes I feel like our tiredness and going and going and going is our own fault. Why do we feel like we have to go, 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 go to be righteous people? My friends, you are righteous people. Why? Because Jesus is righteous. Why are you still paying bills that have been paid? That's exhausting. Stop that. Jesus paid for it. It's done. It's finished. He canceled the record of debt. You don't have to do to be righteous. Now, there's things we should do because we are righteous, but you don't have to do anything to maintain righteousness. It's yours in Christ to those who trust and believe. Stop ascending heights that have already been brought down. Stop swimming abysses that you will never be able to span. You will drown. You build your Tower of Babel and you will die. Instead, trust the one who's already done all of that and more on your behalf. So the promise stands. Everyone who believes. Now keep in mind this is in the same context where Paul just said that God elects. He's also able to say this just a few verses later. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. 
for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, he's doing something very intentional here. He just proclaimed that God is sovereign in electing people to become his, peop- his, his people, right? So basically, if you're in the family of Abraham, it's because God willed it. He, he elected it to happen. He predestined it. We can use those words because they're scriptural. But now he says, it, it almost seems paradoxical, paradoxical. Though God is sovereign, man is still responsible in this section of text, Paul, Paul continues to highlight the fact that God's sovereignty doesn't deny that man is responsible to put their faith in Jesus. In fact, it's an established reality. If you read all of 9 and 10 together, God is sovereign, man is responsible, and those two things stand together. Now, now that we've seen that, we can ask the question, so then, is it God's fault, seeing that He's sovereignly elected who would be in his people. Is it God's fault that the Jews have rejected? According to what he just said, everyone who believes that God has brought the justification from heaven, he's brought it from the abyss, it's not far from them, it's near. Is it God's fault that they have not picked it up and made it theirs? What would you say? No, absolutely not. It's not God's fault. Man is responsible to believe. That's, I think that's where we're trying to track his logic. Uh, why haven't many of the Jews been saved? The answer is because they haven't believed. Whose fault is this? Having just read his discussion on God's sovereignty, you might be tempted to say it's God's fault. He's to blame that the Jews haven't been saved. And yet, as Paul's about to demonstrate, God has given people, the Jews included, everything they need to hear and believe the gospel. So it's not his fault. Let's track the progression. What do you need to be saved? Well, you have to believe. And then he asks, uh, you have to call on the Lord. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in, uh, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now we often quote this uh, right before mission trips, right? And, and it's typically a call to join in mission. And I think that's a right application. But looking in the context, what he's basically doing is he's setting up an argument here. The Jews haven't believed. They haven't called on the Lord, though he's made the gospel near them in the person of Jesus Christ. They're still out trying to ascend heights and swim abysses they can't. And they're ignoring the fact that Jesus has already come. Well, The fact is that if God had failed to send preachers to proclaim the good news, God would be at fault, wouldn't he? If he he planned the gospel and then he forgot to raise up preachers and those preachers were never sent out and therefore the Jews never believed, who's at fault? Well, that'd be God's fault, right? Because he failed to send preachers. But Paul makes it clear, uh, God didn't forget anything. He did everything that was needed. The problem then is not that God has failed to give something essential for people to believe. He has given them every essential thing. So what then is the problem? They have not all obeyed the gospel. They hear, they've heard it. They've had preachers come to them and proclaim it, but they haven't yet believed, which is what the gospel demands. That's what it means to obey the gospel in this text is that they haven't put down their works. They haven't put down their own pursuits. They're still clinging to themselves in hopes of salvation. The gospel demands absolute singular trust in Jesus, okay? 
Some in the room may be trying to attain righteousness for themselves, fully trusting on themselves. There's others that kind of, they wouldn't deny that they need Jesus, but they also need supplemental insurance, right? Jesus, yeah, he's the reason I'm not going to hell, but but to be righteous, I've got to really stay on top of what I do. So they're kind of in this hybrid zone where they know that Jesus is necessary, but they also need the supplemental insurance of works. The gospel says none of that is gonna work for you. You must fully trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. If you are expecting to stand before God with your voting record, with your, I keep using that because that's that's the thing that we're struggling with these days. But it could also be your church attendance. It could also be what version of the Bible that you use. It could be the fact that you provided for your family in such a decent way. It could be a way, it could be the fact that you've worked so many overtime hours at your job. Whatever it is that you think you can bring to the Lord as proof that you are good. Paul says, none of that's gonna help you. It must be trust and trust in the Lord alone. That's what it means to obey the gospel. He cites Isaiah 53, which in context speaks of the sacrificial suffering servant who died to make many righteous. Even all the way back in Isaiah 53, which was something like 800, 900 years before Jesus was even there, before Jesus uh, took on flesh and, and died on the cross, it talks about, the, it anticipates that there will be people who will hear the gospel and will not believe. He says it in Isaiah 53, 1, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? We're telling them, but they're not trusting it. Preachers preach. Every week they proclaim. We say Christ alone, Christ alone, Christ alone. If they're, they're God-sent preachers, that's what they're preaching. There's a lot of pretenders out there. They're not my brothers, okay? My brothers are those who are proclaiming that gospel week after week after week. Why is it then that people in church are not believing? Because they don't believe. Because they don't trust. They don't put down their own works. God's design is that faith comes through hearing. Your faith should grow as I preach. As anybody that stands behind this pulpit, whether it's another elder, an outside preacher, whoever proclaims the gospel, the intent is that by you hearing this sermon, by you hearing the gospel proclaimed, week after week after week, your faith grows. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes with God's salvific message that is in the gospel, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again to make us righteous. Now, let's just say God determined all that, and he didn't send the preachers, or he didn't uh, didn't send them to, to, to preach the good news. Well, yes, then we could say that it was God's fault, that the Jews somehow had never heard the message. Then maybe it was God's fault. But Paul says in verse 18, if you look at it, he goes through all that chain. How can they, how can they call on him in whom they haven't believed? How can they believe in him in whom they've never heard? How can they hear without a preacher? How can they have preachers without being, preachers being sent? Then he asks this important question. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Just paraphrasing that, don't blame God. He did everything necessary. He sent the preachers. They went. They proclaimed the gospel. They called people the faith. And yet people didn't believe. So who's at fault for Israel's rejection? Yes, God is sovereign in deciding. 
before time began, who would be in his people and who would not be his people. And yet at the end of the day, whose fault is it if they reject the Messiah? He says clearly, it's not God's. God has done everything essential for them to be able to believe. Now, all that to say that while God, and I, and I just, I don't know how sovereignty and responsibility, man's responsibility work together. I, I just want to paraphrase that. But I do think we can take away something out of this, that God is sovereign in electing and calling sinners to himself, but man is still responsible, right, to believe. Somehow those two things stand together. How, again, I have no idea. I said that last week. I don't know. But they're true. Let me just tell you, if you get to heaven and you stand before the Lord because you have been saved, you don't get the credit for that, right? You don't get the credit from that. Who gets the credit for your salvation? The Lord alone. There's no one going to be in heaven even so much saying as, I believed and therefore I'm here. Friends, you wouldn't have believed unless he awakened you to the gospel reality. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people can't open their eyes. Jesus raised you up, opened your eyes, and made blind men see. So when you get to heaven, there's no one going to be going, I earned this. This is mine. You don't get the credit for your salvation. Likewise, there's no one going to be able to stand before the Lord and say, well, I would have believed, but you didn't allow me to. You don't get the credit and God doesn't get the blame. They were absolutely responsible when he sent them preachers to proclaim the gospel message and they rejected He gave them what they wanted. That's the thing. Everyone who rejects the Lord doesn't want the Lord. Everyone who has accepted the Lord is only because God has awakened them up and changed their desire and drawn them to himself. Jesus himself said in John chapter six, if you wanna look it up, John 6, 44, no one comes to me unless he is drawn to me by the Father. What did we want? Not Jesus. What did we want? Not God's righteousness. We wanted totally other things. So why are we here? Because God drew us to himself, which is a gracious God. Does he do that for everyone? No, in his own sovereign purpose and plan, he doesn't. But he did it for you. How gracious is that? Those who reject him, well, they were already swimming in that direction. That's already what they wanted. He just gave them what they wanted, which is a life without him. So all that to say, in either acceptance or rejection, God's grace and his justice stand firm. Those who reject the Lord, God displays himself as completely 100% just. To those who stand forgiven and saved and justified, God reveals himself as completely gracious. Grace and justice stand together. So Israel, by and large, has rejected Christ. Gentiles are trusting in Christ instead. This is according to plan. All the way back in Deuteronomy 32, Moses uh, sung of a day when Israel would reject the Lord for idols and that they would worship him, worship idols instead of him. So he says in this song, long before Jesus ever even walks the earth as a flesh and blood man, that he is going to make them jealous with a people who are not a nation and with a foolish nation, specifically you, 
quite frankly, Gentiles. He's going to make the Jews jealous with people like us. The Jews rejected the cornerstone, the Messiah, and therefore they have stumbled. But in their stumbling, others have received uh, salvation. He quotes Isaiah 65.1, which says, I have been found by those who do not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Long ago, all the way back in time, God planned that you would be here and sitting as his people. And that it might come through the Jews rejecting the gospel so that it would then be poured out on the Gentiles. In fact, when we get to the text next week, everything that's been said so far is paving the way for what's gonna be said next week, that even in Israel's rejection, God is working out his promise and plan to save a multitude from all nations. It's because he handed them the gospel goblet, of the, the wine of the gospel. They have snubbed it, that he's passed the gospel goblet to you so that now you could sip and enjoy the wine of grace. And then he says in Romans 11 that there's gonna be a day he's gonna hand it back to his people again. And they will be invited to sip and enjoy. God is working out his promises day after day after day in small ways and in big ways. So has God been unjust? Paul says, no, absolutely not. When the Jews have rejected Jesus, has God forgotten his promise to them? No, absolutely not. And because he hasn't unjustly forsaken them, and because he hasn't forgotten his promises, because he's not powerless to do as he says, we can trust that we will never, ever be thrown off as the people of God. We are God's people forever because he is just, gracious, and sovereign.